Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. A few days ago, I interviewed cardiologist and professor of medicine, Dr. Peter McCullough, who talked about the critical importance of early treatment for those testing positive for COVID and how information on early treatment, which could potentially hasten the end of the pandemic, was being suppressed. During the interview, Dr. McCullough also talked about who was and wasn't a good candidate for vaccination. That prompted an immediate response from reporter Remy Banet from Agence France Presse, who posted, quote, a fact check, unquote, titled, U.S. Cardiologist Makes False Claims About COVID-19 Vaccinations. In his article, Banet claims Dr. McCullough made three false statements. Today, I've brought Dr. McCullough back on the show to respond to Banet's claims. Welcome, Dr. McCullough. Good, thanks for having me. So before we get into what he claims are your three false claims, I just, I, I was very, I found this very interesting because it sort of has the classical earmarks of a hit piece. Uh, the first, and you know, I've been exposing corruption in journalism now for 20 years, published a couple of books about it and had to write rebuttals myself for my own work. So, and the first thing you notice on these things is that they have a banner headline that promises to deliver something big you know, they're going to present the facts that you don't know or won't present to the public. The other thing they do is they use a visual of some sort. And the visual in this article is a frame from your testimony before the Texas uh, Senate with a big red X across it. And the other thing, the other hallmark I've noticed is they always set up what they're gonna, what they say they're gonna do. They, there's, a, there's a paragraph that's a setup that you know, is supposed to prepare the reader's frame of mind. And this introduction, and I'll explain to you, you know, the trick that's used here. The introduction says, video of a cardiologist claiming that there is no reason for healthy people under the age of 50 or those who have recovered from COVID-19 to be vaccinated against the virus has been viewed hundreds of thousands of times on social media. But medical experts say younger people should be inoculated because they can still be affected by the virus and that the shots also benefit those who have already had the disease. So now what he's done is he's saying that you made a claim, but there's no follow-up line to that saying, this is what he's claiming, okay? But then he comes in and he says, but medical experts, and he doesn't name anybody, says that younger people should be inoculated. And here he explains why. He doesn't explain what, he doesn't have a follow-up explanation of why you said what you said, but he has a follow-up explanation for what they said, which is because they can still be affected by the virus. So now they've set it up so that you're just making claims, but these medical experts are saying you're wrong and here's why they're saying you're wrong. So. Go ahead. Well, let me just respond to that by saying that uh, just like in today's interview, these are uh, my own opinions and not necessarily the opinions of any institution. Um, but I have uh, served as an expert uh, witness and uh, someone who's testified under oath many times in, um, in state court and in federal court in some very high stakes activities. And when I testified in the US Senate the Texas Senate, uh, the Colorado General Assembly, and coming up the New, New Hampshire Senate uh, tomorrow morning. These are testimonies given under oath, and they are asking for expert opinion, opinion. And so I am actually asked for my opinions. 
So opinions are not subject to fact checking and expert opinions are given by experts. So when a reporter, uh, Rami Benet, makes uh, a big red X over me when I'm giving my opinions, uh, in, in many ways, that's a, uh, honestly a straight up insult that the, he's making a statement that uh, my opinions are not of any value. And any person who's called to testify, of course, their opinions are of value. And of course, their opinions, that's what they are. Well, what he's saying, he's not saying your opinions are not of value. He's saying that your opinions are not backed up by real information, by facts. That's what he's saying. But and keep in mind that keep in mind that opinions are based on the sum total of knowledge and expertise, such as a doctor like myself gathers over the course of an entire career of study and understanding human medicine and biology and caring and seeing examining for patients. And the reason why I was asked to testify uniquely is that I had the sum convergence of information. Uh, uh, on SARS-CoV-2 um, experience in interpreting evidence and interpreting studies, being an editor of two major journals and being the most published person in my field in the world. Um, you know, any court in the world or any state assembly would want an opinion from someone who's really at the pinnacle of their field. Now I'm applying it to a brand new pandemic, but I'm using the sum total of my skills in doing so. And in, in, in my view, that, that opinion is of, uh, of as much value as any opinion in the world right now. Well, let's, let's get to what he's saying you said that's wrong, okay? He said, and, and again, this is part of what, this is part of the hit piece, is that he says, okay, you healthy people younger than 50 do not need a COVID vaccine. False, he says, okay? So he talks about how the CDC says on its website that the risk of severe disease from the novel coronavirus increases with age. And he says, um, actually people under 50 account for 4% of deaths involving COVID-19. And um, he quotes an article in Science that says uh, by mid-August 2020, the resurgence in the US was largely driven by adults 20 to 49. Now, this doesn't make or break a case for vaccines. It just says these, you know, these are the statistics about people who have COVID. He doesn't mention, well, let me go ahead. Well, let me just respond to those. None of those points make a compelling case at all for mass vaccination. Um, the, the issue of uh, very rare events really needs to be discussed. So in the vaccine trials, uh, less than 1% of those vaccinated and with either the real vaccine or placebo ever developed COVID over the course of two months. So it's hard to experience less than 1% and much less than 1%. Now, when you take people under age 50, the mortality rate and hospitalization rate of COVID-19 is way less than 1%. So when you take the product of way less than 1% times way less than 1%, uh, the point is anybody receiving the vaccine under age 50 is gonna have an imperceptible effect of the vaccine on a population level. Remember that the illness is treated and uh, he points out that 4% of people who died were under age 50. That's not the same thing as a 4% mortality rate. The mortality rate is way, way less than 1%. But having said that, the mortalities uh, that have accrued are in patients who are not treated of all age groups. And because we know treatment reduces the risks of hospitalization and death by 85%, when we apply that to a range below age 50, my clinical judgment, in my opinion, is that vaccination would have no population impact in patients under age 50. That's my opinion. With, you're saying, with the, with the early treatment? Well, when we put all the factors together that 
the vaccination has less than a 1% public health impact uh, from the clinical trials. And the rates of COVID-19 hospitalization and death when it occurs under age 50 are very, very rare. When you put all this rare data together, when you multiply the numbers, the numbers just get smaller. So the point is vaccinating people under age 50 mathematically cannot have a public health impact. Well, that, and you said that, I believe, you said that in the previous interview that we did, you already pointed that out. And one thing I noticed that, that he does in here is that he separates uh, what you're saying about early treatment from what you're saying about vaccinations. Because you were saying, A, first of all, vaccinations have such a small, small impact. And also you said, I believe, that because they're experimental, for some people, they might not be a good idea. Like well, women. Don't keep in mind the vaccines were never tested uh, in patients who had COVID, who had previous suspected COVID, in childbearing women. Uh, uh, in uh, women who are pregnant, and then individuals under age 17 years old. That's a large fraction of people under age 50. So right away, we would take away those groups as never being tested in clinical trials. And we never would apply any form of treatment, even fully FDA-approved treatment. We never apply those treatments, drugs, or vaccines to people not studied in clinical trials. Again, that's my opinion, and that's my judgment. If you ask me, Dr. McCullough, we have a brand new drug and it's never been tested in a pregnant woman. Should we just go ahead and treat pregnant women? Of course, my answer would be no. Any reasonable doctor would say no. Wouldn't the FDA advise no? Wouldn't the CDC advise no in that? In that? Well, therein lies a, a problem that if our agencies now recommend something that uh, reasonable doctors think is inappropriate, okay? So if reasonable doctors think that uh, a completely new uh, treatment that's never been tested in pregnant women should not be given to pregnant women, and now our agencies go ahead and make that recommendation, um, that's a, a red flag. That's a red flag that something very wrong is going on uh, at the agency level. Uh, and it's going on unchecked right now. Yeah, because they're saying they're saying people who've had COVID should have the vaccine. They're saying everybody should be vaccinated, basically. So it, that is uh, uh, beyond any uh, regulatory standards. Regulatory standards are strictly that new treatments are used uh, uh, in patients who have been studied. So we have information on safety. And uh, uh, anytime we deviate from that and we start using something in patients that weren't included in the original studies, almost every time we get burned with safety. So the point in fact is for uh, childbearing women, now the, the case reports coming in of miscarriages and stillbirths are quite alarming. The uh, manuscript that was in preprint now from Manchester United Kingdom where uh, approximately 2,000 patients were mass vaccinated, 26% of them had prior COVID, but they felt uh, uh, coerced into vaccination. They had two to three times the serious adverse event rate. So here's an, my judgment. My opinion is that a COVID recovered patient has no opportunity for benefit and only an opportunity for harm. And uh, that was my opinion three or four months ago and now it's supported by the Manchester UK study that suggests, in fact, there's even enhanced harm for a COVID recovered patient to be vaccinated. Why is that? Well, the body has already uh, been primed and been injured by the spike protein. And now you can imagine reintroducing, forcing uh, the body to, uh, to manufacture the spike protein again. Uh, the human body now has all kinds of defense mechanisms uh, at, at work and in fact has exaggerated inflammatory reactions, fever, shortness of breath, uh, constitutional symptoms, 
And in the Manchester UK study, there was uh, higher rates of, of actually hospitalized the safety events. So it's so, just revving up the, uh, it's like revving up the immune system just too much. Right, so any reasonable doctor looking at those data, those are the only data in COVID recovered patients would conclude that no, by, by, by all means, let's not vaccinate COVID recovered patients. We have a signal of harm and we have no signals of benefit. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk about the second, uh, you know, his second uh, claim. He says, people who have recovered from COVID-19 do not need the vaccine. You said that, and he said, that is false. He says that your claim that people who develop COVID have complete and durable immunity is uh is absolutely is is false so what is your response to that well the SARS-CoV-1 virus uh which had its outbreak 17 years ago is about 80 percent similar to the current SARS-CoV-2 virus and what we know from that group since they have been followed for many years that the uh, durability to their immunity is certainly the 17 years that they've been observed. So uh, patients didn't get SARS uh, a second time. And so uh, there's been great interest with 110 million people in the United in the uh, world who've gotten COVID. There's great interest if, if one can get it uh, again and again. And so the important proxy is a severe case requiring hospitalization. Since the nasal testing can be positive uh, and be false positive. It can be false negative. The nasal testing itself can't be used as a, as a proxy for the infection alone. The clinical syndrome of being very sick and ill uh, and requiring hospitalization, in my view, would be really the, the gold standard uh, for a, a case. Uh, there's never been a case where a patient was very ill and hospitalized and proven to have SARS-CoV-2, and I mean proven by, let's say, PCR confirmed with antigen testing or uh, full exomic sequencing, full genomic sequencing, uh, let's say in April. And sure enough, they're in the hospital again in September, sick again, uh, whether it be a variant or the same uh, strain again. It's never happened. It's never happened. So all the cases that have been reported have basically been misrepresentations or misinterpretations of the PCR. So uh, I just reviewed a whole series of these in preparation for this and every single one of them. In fact, sometimes the authors say the first infection was asymptomatic. Well, that's not COVID, that's just a false positive PCR test. The real infection is when someone is clinically ill. And so I think uh, listeners out there can be uh, confident that COVID, reco COVID recovered patients have robust, complete, and durable immunity. And don't forget, there's been a variety of strains in the United States. So our population immunity is, is heterogeneous. That is not true with the vaccine. We are in the clinical trials, breakthrough cases were seen and well described. And now we're deep into it with the vaccinated population coming down with COVID-19. Reports of hundreds of cases from Washington State, Michigan, North and South Carolina, they are absolutely rolling in. In my clinical practice now, I have entire families of variously vaccinated individuals who are coming down with COVID-19. And importantly, in the Pfizer trial, uh, after the first vaccination, there was an increased rate of people presenting with suspected COVID-19 syndromes and in fact having confirmed COVID-19 syndrome in, among those vaccinated and the data from Israel has shown the exact same thing. So it appears that the first vaccination makes a patient even more susceptible to contracting COVID in the community, whether that's due to biologic factors like immature libraries of antibodies, uh, promoting the virus, an easier way for the virus to get gain entry into the system, or whether it's behavioral where people just take off their masks and they feel liberated and they go out. Um, but there's nothing to suggest that the vaccine immunity is anywhere close to being as solid as the natural immunity. Wow. You know, I think that's 
I think that's a message that isn't getting out there because you you just see these articles here and there that say, oh, um, <clears throat> new strain, you know, the vaccine doesn't cover this or new strain. Uh, well, there was, let, let me get back to this. <clears throat> In his rebuttal to, to you saying that, um, people who develop COVID and are treated for it develop a complete and durable immunity. He quotes this uh, British medical journal that isn't even peer reviewed. It's a commissioned article, okay, that, that says they found reinfection is possible. So first of all, they're not saying anything definitive, but my question is based on what? You know, there, there have been, again, misinterpreted uh, case, uh, about 100 misinterpreted cases of false positive nasal PCR. And then there's been some, uh, uh, some population-based antibody studies where, uh, uh, from Scandinavia where antibodies are measured and they're found to be kind of ambiently elevated in some individuals at, at some time points. And then later on, uh, there is confirmed COVID-19 infection. And they say, well, aha, uh, we detected some antibodies a few months ago, and now they have COVID. They must have had two cases of COVID, but not in a single case did a patient actually clinically have the infection twice. And I think again, it's just the it's just the um, weaknesses of the antibody testing or the nasal PCR testing. We should not be fooled by these diagnostic tools and not take them uh, prima facie as uh, being absolute absolute. We should we should really depend on the clinical syndrome, patients being sick with COVID-19. And if we restrict it to that, no, patients don't get it twice. And let me tell you what, we've had um, uh, 550,000 deaths in the United States. Uh, we've had, um, what's the total number of infected? 35 million individuals. Let me tell you what, if our parents uh, and our grandparents we're being hospitalized over and over with COVID and being in the ICU over and over again, it would have become apparent. And I think any person applying their common sense could say, listen, let me think about the universe of COVID patients I know. How many patients have been on the ventilator twice, six months apart with COVID-19? Doesn't happen. Well, Doesn't happen. generally when you get on the ventilator, that's about, <laughs> that's about it. You're getting close to- I'm using that as an ex extreme example but it just doesn't happen twice. Now, there are people who say, oh yeah, I think I had it twice. Almost every time it's because of a misinterpreted PCR. I had a family member who honestly did variously positive or negative for 60 days afterwards. It wasn't five different uh, illnesses of COVID. It was the same one. And it's just the, the weaknesses of the nasal PCR test. But the audience needs to be really clear on this. You can't get it twice. If you think you found somebody who really has had it twice, I mean, hospitalized twice, uh, the virus was sequenced and it's airtight. It needs to be written up as a, a as a case for doctors to study, but it's so rare. It's one out of 110 million. Believe me, it just doesn't happen. Well, <clears throat> that's not the impression this gentleman is trying to um, <clears throat> convey. Um, the other thing that he says, <clears throat> he talks about um, SARS-CoV-2 SARS is an uh, entirely new type of uh, coronavirus. And they're talking about, um, they're talking about whether, he, he says this Newcastle, uh, this, this in this paper, Newcastle Academics published in the, uh, it's a paper published in the Journal of Infection. I don't know if you know this journal, uh, says that, um, reinfections, there have been reinfections and, uh, but they've been milder and only two people have died in this study. And he says that, um, you know, but some people are wondering if it's reinfection or um, if it's reactivation, but you're saying it's probably just uh, false diagnosis the first time. Right. Yeah. It's almost always a misinterpretation of the first one. So whenever somebody says, oh, here's a, here's a reinfection case, the idea is to look at both cases. 
the one I, I just reviewed before I came on was by, I think the first author is Vinod, V-I-N-O-D. And it basically said, oh, here's a person. Their first time they were positive, they were asymptomatic and nothing happened. And then uh, six months later, here, they really got COVID. Well, my point is when they were asymptomatic and nothing happened, that was a false positive PCR. The interpretation is not that they had COVID. The interpretation we understand now is that's a false positive PCR. Every single time, there was one from uh, France a few months ago, the same thing. It's just a false positive PCR that uh, the authors uh, mistakenly claim as an infection. And, uh, and then, you know, months later, the patient gets the real thing. Well, so. this PCR testing is kind of troubling then because um, if, first of all, I, I think I read somewhere, is this true, that the, the, the inventor of the PCR test said that it was not to be used as a diagnostic tool? Is that correct? I, I think no. I think the idea is that none of the PCR tests have ever been approved or evaluated as screening tools in asymptomatic people. They were all evaluated as diagnostic aids in sick people. And what's been shown is that as the technology gets better and better, they can run what's called cycle thresholds at higher levels. And once the cycle threshold uh, starts to become uh, rapid enough, then even little fragments of RNA from other viruses or dead COVID virus, or just honestly, it can be just be various fragments of other microorganisms in the nasal uh, secretions can turn the test positive. So in the setting of somebody completely asymptomatic, let's say an NBA basketball player is being put through this, when the COVID uh, test is, is positive, the PCR test is positive in that individual, um, the chances of that being a false positive are about 97%. And uh, even the sports newscasters know this. So uh, the coach of the Dallas Stars recently had a positive PCR and the newscaster said, well, uh, we interviewed him. He has no symptoms. Uh, uh, I'm sure it's a false positive and he'll be back behind the bench uh, in two days. And I chuckled to say, listen, even our newscasters know about false positive testing. And so many have said, including myself, we should get rid of asymptomatic testing uh, because it just leads to the basically finding false positive cases. And we should restrict the testing uh, to patients who are sick. And uh, in terms of the cycle threshold, uh, there's an important paper by Boston, B-O-S-T-O-M, in 2021 from uh, the Northeast of the United States that analyzed the probability of tests being truly positive and cycle threshold and he found that the cycle thresholds, I think below 25 or so, one can start to be pretty confident that that's a real COVID-19 infection. And clearly the rapid antigen test, which identifies the nucleocapsid uh, can be used. And then the, if the virus can be completely sequenced, which it has been done in some of the Chinese um, studies, then the real virus is there. So the, the, the PCR test at high cycle thresholds has led to a lot of, um, of misunderstanding, and I think fueled a lot of. Uh, uh, I can imagine someone like uh, Ramy Bennett, who's you know he's not a doctor, he's just a fact-checking reporter. I could see how uh, things could be rapidly flying over his his head. head. And uh, you know I've got in seven years of, of detailed education in my life, and then decades of experience and looking over data very carefully. That's really well, so I careful about giving my opinions because I know they're going to be revisited uh, in years and decades in the future. And I'm certainly going to be on the, I want to be on the right side of history. Look, this guy put this article together literally the same day we did our interview. I'm sorry, that's not due diligence on something like this. It's not. And it's clear if you read the article, <clears throat> that he hasn't done his due diligence. I mean, he's he's quoting from from studies that aren't even peer reviewed. You know, he's- well, well, Keep in mind, opinions are that, they're medical opinions. And if you were to get a hundred doctors in a room and ask them, doctors, uh, do you think that uh, we should do asymptomatic testing? You're gonna get a range of opinions on this, but, but that's the whole, uh, reason why we have opinions. Uh, let me tell you, in cancer, 
when a patient has a complicated cancer, a case of cancer, we have what's called tumor board, where oh, okay. a single doctor doesn't decide what's going on. Actually, a group of doctors sits down, they look at all the information, and they hash it out. I think with COVID-19, for all of these critical decisions, I'd be more comfortable if we really had a team of doctors, a panel of doctors who weren't stakeholders. Uh, when I mean stakeholders, when a doctor works for the FDA or works for the CDC or the National Institutes of Health, they actually have a stake in it. So if, if the goal of these agencies is mass vaccination, they, they become stakeholders. They're not free to independently uh, render an opinion. And now's the time for, for, for unbiased, uh, independent opinions regarding these issues. America needs independent uh, thought and expertise at this time. We're in a dangerous position with stakeholders. In fact, we're almost down to almost one face on TV now as uh, a singular stakeholder, uh, a person who's been to the originating lab a few years before this virus came out, and a person now has called the shots over two administrations. And you can see where we are right now. I think many are concerned that we've lost teamwork. We've clearly lost peer review. Many of the doctors who work for the agencies, uh, they don't hold medical licenses. They're not board certified in their fields. And they certainly don't treat or see and examine patients with COVID-19. I think Americans should be very worried um, about that. Um, I, I tell you, as an American, I want to see doctors who are treating patients with COVID-19, who are handling this face-to-face, -face, and who are building their experience of how to treat this infection. Let me explain to you what's wrong with this piece, besides the fact, besides all the things that I've already explained. Did this guy call you and ask you for further explanation of why you said what you said? No. No, he did not. And he doesn't explain, he, he, I don't know, he didn't, he didn't call, I bet you he didn't call any of these other people either. He just pulled quotes from these, from these various studies. And that's, that's, that's where the corruption is. If you don't make an effort, if you don't do your due diligence on, on this kind of subject, which is a, it's a life-threatening, life-saving subject, okay? You can really do a lot of harm or you can do a lot of good if, when you report on this kind of thing on, on COVID right now. And if you don't do your due diligence, it's, it's the worst kind of corruption in this particular case because people's lives are at stake. Well, keep in mind, one of the tactics he used that many use is simply to, to what's called defer to authority. So if, if, if one says, well, uh, the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, the WHO and the TGA, the EMA, um, uh, uh, they, they, you know, they, they disagree with you or what have you, that's perfectly fine. That's the reason why I'm actually supposed to have an independent opinion. If my opinion was exactly the same as the WHO, there's no reason to have me come give my opinion. They can just look at the WHO recommendations. So the whole purpose of getting independent opinions is to hear something other than what these agencies say. Well, but it's, it's more than just on the one hand, on the other hand. An opinion, again, as I've said before, and I mean, that's, that's why I had you on in the first place was because when you were testifying, your opinions were based on something. First of all, you had the expertise to assess the information from the studies. You actually, you actually were part of studies you know, you actually treat patients. There's a whole collection of things, and and you're you're an honest you're you're being an honest broker of the information, and you're looking at it from many years of experience and from frontline experience. Okay, and and the World Health Organization, in particular, they have put things out in the past that have been very you know, it, you can tell there's an agenda to get to those, these vaccines. You can tell, you know, you can tell, and, and everybody has written about it. It's been talked about, uh, and they know that they have a public trust issue. They know it. But, but keep in mind that 
the doctors at WHO or CDC or NIH or FDA, you know, many of them, re, you know, remain unnamed when the recommendations come out. The recommendations are just opinions too. They're just yeah, but they have to be based on something. I know, but I know, but the they idea they have is, to be based on some kind of expertise and on some well, and studies. I know, but the, the idea here is what's called inferential thinking, truth out there, but we never really have truth in our hands. That we make a series of inferences, we put things together to try to approximate truth. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to approximate truth. And so medicine is both an art and a science, and we rely on epidemiology and statistics and use inferential thinking. It's very different than engineering, which is based on deductive thinking. If this, then that, you know, we rely on engineering to keep planes up in the air. Of so we use, we use that deductive thinking all the time. But getting onto this issue of uh, asymptomatic spread, I did want to um, uh, address that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's the third that's the third false statement he claims you made that there's no evidence of asymptomatic spread of COVID-19. Well, I, I, here's the, I think some really important points. Um, when papers have made claims about asymptomatic spread, uh, they are trying to rely on histories given by patients who are sick with COVID-19, or they're trying to rely on patients who have had a single nasal PCR test, again, which could be false positive or false negative. Or the worst type of studies are the ones that rely on modeling. So uh, one as an example to cite is by Johansson, it's in JAMA 2021, which claims- That's the Journal of American- Medical Association. Uh, yeah. Which made a claim that a sizable proportion of cases were due to asymptomatic spread. This was simply a modeling exercise, meaning there wasn't any real data. And it just says, let's assume that people are asymptomatic for five days. And if that's the case, and then we apply it to the Johns Hopkins database and what have you, that therefore, when we do the math, there must be you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% of cases that were asymptomatically spread. Well, that's just, in a sense, an advanced guesstimate. Okay, it's not. But that's not. That's the the basis. the 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 point of departure is an is, is an assumption that's sort of right. It's, it's snatched out of the air. Right. It's just an assumption. So um, uh, many have looked to the paper by Cao uh, uh, C A O. It's published in Nature Communications. Now this study is very impressive. This is 10,652,513, please fact check that, Mr. Ramey uh, Benet, um, uh, individuals in China. And they all underwent not only the nasal PCR testing, but they did additional PCR testing to try to identify the nucleocapsid and really get patients who really had the virus. They really had the virus. And out of these, 10,652,513 individuals, they found exactly 300 who actually had the virus, who actually really had the virus. And of those 300, 190 had already developed antibodies. So they basically had uh, an asymptomatic infection and they were already forming antibodies, okay? The other 110 had not yet had antibodies developed. But what they did of those 300 is they tracked them down. They assiduously went after every single one of them and said, okay, give us every contact. Give me every single person you came in contact, family members, friends, what have you. And they went through it. And you know what? They couldn't find a single case of asymptomatic spread. A single case oh, of asymptomatic wow. Now, importantly, they, they did testing in people down to six years old six years old. And do you know how many teenagers under age 17 they found with the virus in their nose, asymptomatic, you know how many they found? Four, four out of a population of over 10 million sample. So if wow. anybody thinks that children are the biggest threat and, they're, and tons of children are carrying around the virus, giving it to their grandparents, there's not a single shred of evidence that that's the case, none. This is an entire falsehood that we should be vaccinating the children 
that the children are the next biggest risk, um, that we should uh, have our parents force our kids into mass vaccination. You can see where this is going now. None of this, this is a house of cards that's been built on falsehoods. You know, you've gone through them all. COVID-19 patients can get the virus over and over again, false. COVID-19 patients uh, um, uh, don't have immunity good as uh, vaccine immunity, false. Children, tons of kids are carrying it all over the place, false. I mean, when we actually, so people making these claims, we always have to ask, show us the data, show us the science. If they say, oh, it's a modeling study. No, that's a modeling study. That's based on guesstimates. Oh, here, it's a, P, it's a false PCR study. No, those are false positive PCRs. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an antibody study. No, no, that's not it. So the bottom line is uh, we have lost our way in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, all of us, including myself, who are reasonable doctors are becoming very, very uncomfortable. We're seeing things happen that we've never seen before. Uh, this idea of uh, applying the vaccine, uh, which is not 100%, uh, uh, which doesn't have any safe safety or efficacy data in children or pregnant women and childbearing, COVID recovered, suspected COVID recovered. The idea of applying something that's novel, that's not fully FDA approved to those groups is unconscionable. So those CDC and FDA and other stakeholders, media stakeholders that are promoting this, I think really have to do a self-examination. They have to open their eyes and ask themselves, if this was a new medication, would we do this? No. Those who are calling for passports, vaccine passports, they really need to look at this as we see more and more patients who are fully vaccinated and getting COVID. And we're not seeing COVID recovered patients get COVID. We have to ask ourselves, is there gonna be a passport? Who, who should actually get a passport? Wouldn't COVID recovered patients be the first one in line for a passport if we're gonna have passports? What are we gonna do with all these vaccinated patients getting COVID and then spreading it to one another and they're all getting sick together? What's the use of a passport to begin with? So this, you can see how things are eroding. And so today, today another shoe dropped. And that is we got to a threshold of concern where the CDC and the FDA uh, pulled the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And I can tell you in the CDC vaccine adverse event reporting system, Johnson & Johnson's the safest vaccine. That actually has the fewest of all safety concerns. The safety concerns are greater in Pfizer and Moderna. Really? What Pfizer are the safety concerns for Pfizer and Moderna? Death. Death. What? Death. We have over 2,500 vaccine reported deaths. This is very important. When someone dies and a healthcare worker sees it and is sufficiently concerned, that healthcare worker can make an entry into the vaccine adverse event reporting system. For these vaccines now, that's happened over 2,500 times. So it's been the healthcare worker who's been in the vaccination center. It's been uh, the nursing home worker or direct care worker who's actually vaccinated someone, or it's a family member who calls the doctor or calls a healthcare worker and forces a report for that to happen. So uh, there's a Harvard study several years ago that suggesting that only 1% of these serious adverse events are ever reported into the database. But, but, but you may would say- Would anybody make the- I, and, would anybody make the argument, well, that's a small number for the millions who are vaccinated and, and get the right. So, so some have made this claim that, listen, it's a small price to pay, that if we vaccinated 60 million people and it means 2,500 have to volunteer to have their life ended with the vaccine, that's a small price to pay. So let's talk about small price to pay. Um, uh, deaths uh, may not be related to the vaccine. And according to regulatory science, it doesn't matter. By the way, if there's a death with a drug, the FDA doesn't care if it's due to the drug or not. The bottom line is it occurs within 30 days of taking the drug, it counts. So as a typical um, standard for drugs, we get to about six deaths, certainly 10 deaths, there's a black box warning. So if you ever see a TV commercial, yep. may result in death. Okay, that's a black box warning. When we get to typically 50 or 60 deaths with any type of drug, it gets pulled off the market. It's just the FDA really? does not tolerate that's you. Oh, yeah. 
both, okay? When we had the swine flu, 1976, swine flu, there was an effort to vaccinate the entire population. We got to about 25% of the population, which at the time was 210 million. So we vaccinated 55 million people in the United States with swine flu. We got to 25 deaths. It was pulled off the market. They said, stop it. It's just too much. Why is this not the case now? Okay. Well, listen to this. We're at 60 million people vaccinated. We've had 2,500 deaths. We vaccinate 195 million people every year with the flu with the flu vaccine. The typical deaths that end up in the database are between 20 and 30. Okay, for 195 million. So by all standards, the mortality risk with this vaccine is off the Richter scale. It's off the Richter scale. Americans should be alarmed. And there's more hospitalizations than death. There's like 58,000 safety events. It means people are concerned enough they're reporting them and they all pile up on days one, two, and three. So Americans should be very alarmed right now. They should be extremely alarmed with the deaths that are being reported to Hold this. Hold up, database. did you just say 58,000 adverse? Uh... Events are being reported. Hospitalizations, deaths, uh, developing blood disorders, miscarriages, emergency room visits, office visits. I mean, keep in mind, there's been nothing like this ever. It, it, it is agonizing as a doctor um, trying to recommend or guide a patient on vaccination. And I have to tell you, my, my phone blew up today when Johnson Johnson was pulled off the market because that was the one I was recommending because it seemed to be safer than Moderna and Pfizer and the patients are furious. I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what you said about the deaths, the number of deaths and how in the cases of other vaccines and medications if you have 20 or 30 deaths it's being pulled and here we're at you know 2500 and we're and and 58,000 adverse events and and nothing's happening nobody's saying pull these things what 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 is going on well since this session was about fact checking let me give you the exact facts through April 2nd, 2021, from the CDC data. Okay. There have been exactly, and this is all COVID-19 vaccines, and this is for Ramey Benet, the fact checker. I want him to fact check this. There have been 2342 deaths. There have been 4972 hospitalizations. There have been 8975 urgent care visits, 8744 office visits, 412 cases of anaphylaxis or life-threatening allergic reactions, 460 cases of Bell's palsy. That's where the face is paralyzed on one side. Oh. Uh, that uh, was reported in a clinical trial. There's been 502 heart attacks, 84 reported miscarriages, 3145 severe allergic reactions, and 321 blood disorders called thrombocytopenia or low platelets. That's just being re what's being reported in the database and from published other published studies, it's suggesting that that's somewhere uh, at, at a high end, that's 10% of reality. Uh, it could be closer to 1%. It may just be, uh, you know, there could be 10 times more. Why aren't doctors clamoring to have th these vaccines pulled? I mean, the doctors who are seeing these adverse reactions. It, it's just the contrary. Uh, uh, doctors are uh, wildly promoting mass vaccination, just like the CDC, the NIH, and the stakeholders. Health systems are wildly promoting. But don't they, they all know the statistics are showing that these things are way more deadly and, and cause way more adverse events than, than uh, other medications and, and vaccines, right? Well, what's going on is very effective. It's called the Trusted News Service, Addresses News Initiative. And this is a uh, uh, openly stated December 10th um, effort put together by uh, all the major media. Uh, uh, YouTube has explicitly stated that they are involved in this. And this is an effort to what's called reduce vaccine hesitancy. 
So anything negative on the vaccine is being scrubbed from the media. It's being scrubbed from social media. And even though these statistics are available on the CDC website, one can just do their, their own query. There's actually now a query tool called OpenVAERS. Uh, these, this information is being scrubbed from all forms of reporting. And in fact, anytime a death is reported, there's a quick tagline that says, and the death wasn't related to the vaccine. Uh, and when we were at 1,600 deaths, the Center for Disease Control just uh, put a statement on the website saying that CDC and FDA doctors, not named, uh, reviewed all the deaths and none of them were related to the vaccine, none. Well, let me tell you, 1,600 deaths, when you read the narratives, getting the, getting the autopsy reports, getting the death certificates, getting the hospital records, figuring out what happened, that would have taken months and months and months to do. Uh, there are cases where people die right in the vaccination center, right after they get the vaccine. It's, it would be impossible to come up with a number like zero. None of them were related to the vaccine. And according to regulatory science, it doesn't matter anyway. The FDA never really cares if what the sponsor thinks about causality. The FDA says, listen, enough's enough when it comes to a drug. There's been so many deaths, sorry, you gotta pull it. Here, this is just, just like the CDC, FDA, and NIH saying vaccinate women. Just like they're saying that for them to say none of the deaths are related to the vaccine. At this point in time, I think reasonable doctors could conclude that the agency's opinions now are not trustable. And we're in a runaway freight train of trouble. And I think Americans listening to this ought to start to feel really uncomfortable. None of these things make sense. When I've had somebody, I had a conversation, casual conversation with somebody and him and his wife were proud to have the vaccine. They were patriots. They went out and got vaccinated. The first thing they asked me if I got vaccinated. And then I said, you know, there, there is a concern that these, these deaths are mounting up. And he said, listen, there's been 60 million people vaccinated, 2,500 people dying. He said, small price to pay. And I said, you know what? I bet Adolf Hitler said that too. Small price to pay to have an Aryan race. Um, what we're seeing now is we have so many parallels to uh, fascism, to Nazi Germany right now, what's going on. Disinformation, propaganda, harm, fear, uh, 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 coercion. We're in a sense breaking every single rule in the book. There is a principle of medical ethics is called the principle of autonomy. And the principle of autonomy is written to the Nuremberg Code. It says that any person has the right to determine what goes into their body, what medications, what needles, what injections, what procedures, that you that you have that God-given right. Now you can listen but to it. What they're, what's happening now is you're like a cornered rat. Everybody's like a cornered well, rat listen, because the, 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 if no, you don't get the vaccine, says, you, have the right you can't go out. If you get don't get the vaccine, you can't get on a plane. If you don't get the vaccine, well, you can't be he, over here. You can't be, so you get cornered. Well, Christina, the, the Nuremberg Code to finish says, you have the right to determine this without coercion, without pressure, and without reprisal. So this decision cannot be coerced. So let me give you an example. Houston Methodist Hospital, we'll call them out. Uh, they're offering $500 to everybody who would take the vaccine because there's such hesitancy to this. Well, that's that $500 to someone, someone at a lower income level, that is a form of coercion. If someone says you can't get on a plane unless you're vaccinated, that's a form of coercion. Uh, there are statements now, there was a doctor recently in the news who said, I'm not gonna see patients in my office unless they've all received the vaccine. That's a form of coercion. Some hospitals are now saying they're going to have a census of all the doctors and nurses who had the vaccine, and they're going to have a list who didn't, and then they're going to, they're, they're going to do something with these lists. Some have said that they're going to have to have people wear a certain mark, um, uh, some type of mark. There was an a, a, a example in a nursing home where there was one patient who declined the, the vaccine and the nursing home decided to put a yellow gown on this woman every day to mark her. Well, these forms of marking people, 
And these forms of coercion, what have you, they're very similar to Nazi Germany. Remember, if you didn't kind of start to go along with the program of Adolf Hitler, there was a, uh, a period of time where there was forms of coercion and marking. And ultimately, people got to the point where they were marked. And, and don't forget, there were right. Jews and non-Jews who right. lost their lives uh, in the uh, Holocaust. It was, you know, more Jews than non-Jews, but, you know, the ratios were, were both, fractions were both pretty high. The idea is you can see this happening now. There are so many parallels to this and how the human minds in groupthink can start to become very distorted. This idea of small price to pay. Of course, my answer is, well, what if that was your mom? Would you still be saying that? Yeah. Right? Small price to pay? Well, I mean, <clears throat> it doesn't really, to me, if it's not, if it's not in line with previous practice, that's, particular, that's particularly telling. If you're telling me that they, you know, pulled drugs off after 20, 30 deaths, and now we're like into the thousands and it's, you know, we're still going along, that that tells me that there's another agenda at play and that, you know, people who are trying to, like you, who are saying, look, early treatment, if we do early treatment, and it's funny, again, um, having these conversations with you at a time when members of my family in France have come down with COVID and are on the protocol. It's been two days now and everybody's up and feeling much better and, you know, getting ready to, you know, get on with their lives again, you know? Well, I got to tell you, today was a tough day and maybe today was the first uh, big day of, of, um, of new understanding. But when I was, many of my patients called me regarding the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And then I told them, I said, now you understand why I agonized over the recommendation. I agonized over it because I had uncertainty with respect to safety once it became broadly used. And what we learned with the AstraZeneca and the um, Johnson Johnson vaccine, I think, um, think almost assuredly, uh, uh, unless it's, it's covered up, it'll be shown with the other vaccines, is that these produce the spike protein. The spike protein actually impairs platelets in red blood cells. And in some unlucky people, uh, begins to cause blood clotting or low platelets uh, in individuals. And the blood clotting occurs in a really critical part in the brain called the cavernous venous uh, uh, sinus. So it's cavernous sinus thrombosis. And Ramey Bennett can fact check that to make sure I've got the right uh, ventricle in the brain affected. Um, so he's a, well, buy him a cup of coffee uh, when I go to France next time. But this should be a lesson. We're going to have to finish now. But this should be a lesson to young journalists who are trying to um, put X's over senior scientists in the world and, and people who have really dedicated their life uh, to science and to medicine. And I recently stepped out of the box of my traditional role as an internist and cardiologist to face the pandemic because I felt a compelling need, uh, given all the terrible things we're seeing, that patients not being treated, all the fear and suffering, hospitalization and death, and now forcing people against their will into mass vaccination. Mass vaccination with a product that is, is certainly not very effective. People are getting COVID like crazy after vaccination. And on top of that, is causing uh, whole horrors in terms of death, hospitalization, and safety events. So I, I am extremely concerned. Uh, today is April 13th, 2021. Maybe today is the first day of reckoning. And hopefully we should see uh, a great deal of scrutiny on the other two vaccines and try to come up with what's called risk mitigation. Risk mitigation is saying, listen, we got a safety problem with the product. Let's try to find a way to use it safer. Maybe it's the different using different demographic and age groups. Maybe it's uh, having people not on certain medications like oral contraceptives, what have you. Um, maybe it's a pretreatment with aspirin. Maybe it's finding a different dose or dose schedule of the vaccine. But there probably should be, in my view, uh, a complete pivot towards risk mitigation with the vaccines. So well, I mean, the, uh, yeah, well. the problem here is is that they're, they, they can't be held accountable. The vaccine makers can't be held accountable. So, you know, let's play fast and loose with the lives of people. Here's, here's one hope is many, including Scott Gottlieb, a former FDA commissioner, who's a vaccine stakeholder. He's a Pfizer board member. And so he's, he has a financial interest in the success of the vaccine. 
Dr. Fauci and the NIH officers, they have their co-patent owners on the Moderna vaccine. They have a financial stake in the outcome of this vaccine. Um, uh, they have actually uh, joyously said that uh, the vaccines will quickly get full FDA approval. And you know what? I would welcome that because if it's full FDA approval, we have a better chance of holding the feet to the fire of the FDA and say, okay, this is fully FDA approved now. It's not an emergency. It should be held to the same standard as drugs and other products. The other thing, if it's fully FDA approved, that means people will have to buy it. That means insurance companies will have to pay for it. Right. And, and people are going to start to look at this and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, um, you know, if we approve this, you know, who's paying, who's paying for that next hospitalization? Is the insurance company paying for that? I think FDA approval should be welcome. Well, listen, I thank you so much for coming on again. And we'll be sending this to Mr. Binet and, uh, you know, let's stay in touch. Okay.